Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast, where we discuss how to move away from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems. A circular economy. My name is Laura and I am part of the learning team here at the Foundation. In this episode, Joe Isles, the Circular Design Program Lead at the Foundation, is joined by Malin Nording, the Head of Circular Business Development at the Inter-IKEA Group. We will also hear from Emily Piloton, the founder and author of Girls' Garage, how to use any tool, tackle any project and build the world you want to see, in conversation with Anna Kerald and myself from the Foundation. Throughout the episode, we will be drawing upon the ideas of affordability and inclusion as two elements we must take into account when designing for a circular economy. To kick off the conversation, Joe asked Malin, what's the story so far between IKEA and the circular economy? Thank you, Laura, and hello, everyone. My name is Joe. I lead our work on circular design here at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And I'm delighted to be joined by Marlin Norden today, Head of Circular Business Development at Inter-IKEA Group. Hi, Marlin. Hi. <laughs> it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. And IKEA, hopefully people are aware, IKEA is a strategic partner of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and has demonstrated great ambition on the topic of a circular economy for a number of years now, particularly when it comes to the design, circular design. And you and I have spoken a few times uh, about that uh, over the course of this year. But today, we're going to be taking a slightly different angle and, and looking at, as Laura pointed out, the, uh, this notion of affordability in the circular economy. And people watching may, may have, have noticed this, that as we're seeing more products and services come out and be available on the market that have the circular economy at their heart, sometimes those can be associated with a sort of premium offering. They're, 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 they're a bit more expensive. And people working in businesses may be thinking about this transition to a circular economy and thinking, well, I'm sure that's going to cost, cost us more. It's going to be more, more expensive and we have to figure out how to, how to address that. And uh, I know from our, our, our conversations and, and knowing a bit about the IKEA story so far that that isn't quite the, the approach that IKEA has, has taken when tackling this circular economy transition. So that's something I'd love to get into uh, during our discussion today. But perhaps you could give us a bit of a recap, this, the story so far when it comes to IKEA and the circular economy. Yeah, thank you, Joe. And it's uh, it's great to to be part and uh, having this conversation uh, with you and EMF. And I think, uh, as you're saying, the coming back to what you said, uh, how do we tackle this? And we really love to see things uh, in in a different perspective. And uh, that's why I think uh, I mean we are uh, one of the largest global home furnishing retailers. But you should know that we actually started, we were founded in uh, early 40s by Ingvar Kamprad as a small mail ordering company You're in South Sweden in, in uh, a town called Elmhult, where it's basically uh, only a lot of woods. Uh, so that's where, we, where our journey started. Uh, and what is interesting uh, for me, uh, working for IKEA for now almost 20 years, is that 
the, the culture and the value that sits in the company, what is really in our roots, uh, even if we didn't know it by then, uh, many things that we do is actually now when we look upon it from a circular lens uh, already in that in that context. And I think that's very interesting. And already in the mid-70s, Ingvar put forward this testament, a furniture dealer's testament, uh, which is very much how we operate and our vicious vision uh, being um, creating a better everyday life for the many people. So, of course, it is really rooted in us as a company when it comes to being for the many and being affordable. Uh, and there in this uh, testament, it's, it's already from the beginning, we talk about way, you should see waste as a mortal sin. Uh, we need to solve problems. We need to work with simplicity uh, and this whole entrepreneurial spirit. And that is a really strong culture in the company that constantly follow us. And I think uh, now moving into this shift of a business perspective that really uh, supports us as a company. That line, waste is a mortal sin, that's uh, very strong. I've heard waste is a design flaw and things like that, but that's yeah, even, even yeah. perhaps even more more potent. Do you think that story yeah. that you just told is, um, that is that something that is people are just talking about at IKEA now or have been, they've been talking about that that story for, for a number of years of a circular economy kind of breathed mm. new relevance yeah. into it? Yeah. No, but I think uh, for us, without understanding, we have made a lot of circular um, developments. And I think one good example is, that I think that is very known, our Billy bookcase that has been with us for more than 40 years. Uh, I mean, a couple of years ago, we celebrated his, his birthday. Uh, and... Um, uh, quite some time ago, uh, we started to realize, and that was very much from a cost consciousness and this whole waste idea, thinking that we could do uh, develop the, the material actually from sawdust, because that was just seen as a waste back in the years. But now that is really valuable resources. So, uh, and that is really driven from constantly wanting to improve and constantly want to lower cost, being more affordable for the customer and making these systemic changes. Uh, and I think that really helps us uh, also in this in the in the circular transformation. And I think this is a very good example of uh, uh, this uh, that drives us to that we should really be careful. With the with the resources we have, yeah. uh, both within the company, but also from a, from from a world and planet perspective. Well, let's get into this topic of of, of affordability a, a bit there. Now that people are a bit up to speed on yeah. on on, on <laughs> IKEA's motivation here, and I think if you asked a hundred people on the on the street whether of a to name an affordable furniture retailer, IKEA mm. would spring to mind for for a lot of them. I think. And I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but does affordable just mean cheaper, um, or, or, or as in the the price you pay at the till, or are there yeah. other ways to offer that affordability? I think I mean it comes back to our vision as a company. We want to create a better everyday life for the many people, and um, the many uh, is really. Uh, uh, have thin wallets and also where you want to spend your money and how what you want to uh, use that for. And uh, that's why I think it's so important that uh, to create the value 
uh, for uh, all consumers. It, it can't be something that is uh, exclusive for uh some few. And I think when it comes back to uh, how do we then create uh, affordable solutions that is also valuable and, and products. And I think that is where we quite some time have worked with that we want to democratize design and it should be something, you should be able to have beautiful, functional, sustainable, low price uh, furniture. And that's why we're working with something called democratic design which means that we have a formula that we always want to target uh, with all our products, that it should be, as we said, uh, really good form. It should have a good function. It should be at low price. It should be the quality that you expect. It should be a sustainable product. And we will never um, uh, move away from that. And I mean, we have 12,000 articles or products out there today, and they have all been developed with this mindset. Of course, sometimes we fail uh, and are not able to, to, to live up to. But at the same time, we can see that many products out there in the IKEA world is um, products that is being resold uh, secondhand, and it's even vintage and really high-end, being high-end products. Uh, so I'm happy that many people think of IKEA when you think about some, you want something affordable, but we will never step back that it's uh, a, a really valuable and a better product for you. And I think here also circularity and when you add the idea around circular design to the idea around democratic design, it even makes the product even better, even more valuable. And I think that's why uh, also from a circular perspective, we can continue de delivering more affordable mm. solutions. And maybe you could expand on that because, again, I guess the negative connotation of the word affordable could be that it's cheap or poorly yes. made. It's, yeah. Everyone can afford it or a lot of people mm. can afford it, but yeah. the result is that they have to deal with products that are badly mm. made or not durable yeah. and maybe yeah. it could even cost them more in the long run. Do you yeah. think, so how does circular economy as a, as an idea, as a framework for innovation, help IKEA overcome that negative perception? Well, I, th uh, I fully agree with you that uh, quite often low price means, uh, as, as you described, the perception is that it's cheap and it's not quality and, and so forth. What I think is interesting, uh, I mean, that, uh, I mean, looking into uh, from the world's perspective and people's perspective, I think they are very loud and clear, say, uh, if you have small means and if you have saved uh, for maybe six months to be able to buy something for your home that you really need, uh, that needs to last. Uh, that is something that you uh, will be, have to be able to take care of and uh, and so forth uh, moving forward. And I think that is also why it's so important for us because we will never... Uh, do something exclusive for some few that is uh, more sustainable uh, part of the circular economy because then we have failed because this is in 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 the end a systemic shift which we needs to reach the the many people and I think that is also where we realize that when we enter this more from a systemic perspective we can see that that is really from an affordability point of view when we look into uh, our products and our offer, that that can really support that shift by creating, as I said, uh, 
better products. You can use materials in different uh, ways and so forth. And if we come back to this the importance of, uh, instead of you doing some, um, you can say ranges or like a product collection, uh, that is, it's a good marketing um, uh, or as a good inspiration for others to see that it's possible. But in the end, it's really to roll, roll up your sleeves and uh, make the hard work. So, I mean, so what we have done is that we, we have done an assessment of our complete range of the 12,000 articles to understand how circular are they today? How, how do they enable uh, a circular business of reuse and refurbishment and so forth? And what is really the changes we need to do? And of course, uh, what is important here is, of course, to also, of course, you need to do investments and you need to take decisions. Uh, but in the end, we want our complete range and product offer to be right from the beginning, right for a circular business. And since we are democratic design, they have to be affordable. They have to be for the many. I think, and I think people watching, I, I hope, would be mm -hmm. listening to you thinking that's a, a very honourable and, and and not questioning the sort of values behind yeah. this, uh, and, and and would probably, mm -hmm. I'm sure, you'd have a lot of agreement around this shift to a circular economy needs to be for the, for the many and to, mm -hmm. to, to match the sort of scale and urgency of, of all the challenges we're facing. But people might be thinking, well, sure, they might be thinking those ranges, those premium, that is a chance mm -hmm. for us to, to charge a little a bit more. Mm -hmm. Well, they might be thinking, you know what, it really does cost us more as a business to mm -hmm. make products in this different way, mm -hmm. using new materials mm -hmm. or making them more mm -hmm. durable or repairable. And, and they're probably wondering, well, how, how is IKEA going to pull that off? How, mm. how are you actually going to, to, to do it? Because it's, it seems maybe a bit like alchemy for, for some yeah. businesses also yeah. considering the transition. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's also, I mean, it's not that we are sitting on, uh, on the answer and we are like a faucet in, in this case. We are also learning uh, as we are developing. Uh, at the same time, I mean, what we see is that... Um, being a linear company, uh, which we have been so successfully for the past 75 years, uh, we have built the business around uh, one single product, one interaction with the customer. So we have not utilized the value product and materials have for, for, for multiple lives. So, of course, the investment that you can make in a, in a product from the beginning, you can then harness uh, from several times. So making them uh, more usable, uh, more um, uh, long life, supporting them with care and repair solutions, selling spare parts, furniture parts, building a business on uh, used products, second-hand, third sales, uh, and also seeing uh, our products as material banks for the future uh, is, is key. Uh, in this development. And that is also how we can make sure creating uh, affordable products mm. because we can see now as we are testing, selling uh, products, used products for half the price of a new one, it's a completely new uh, level of affordability than we have ever been able to offer customers. So of course, and we can also see that this is something that is uh, really required and uh, wanting from, from a consumer perspective. So part of the uh, part of the mm -hmm. solution seems to be around, or, or part of the answer there is of thinking about mm -hmm. all the value that's locked up in all mm -hmm. of the the materials and the assets that that flow through IKEA's ecosystem yes. every, yeah. every year that that is currently, or, or for a large part, 
like many businesses, remains uncaptured. People may have heard about the buyback model or the the or the the, the pilot that, that's recently been yeah. uh, tried. Can you say anything about that and just give us an insight into what the yeah. response has been? It's a, it's a very exciting uh, test that we're doing and one of many uh, that we're doing. I think this is the one that has given has been giving most of the attention and excitement because it's so concrete. Uh, and we actually started uh, some years ago and the first market size was some tests in Japan and in Australia. And then we have built uh, more knowledge around it. And it's really for us to understand um, uh, what type of products is interesting for customers? What will they come back with? Uh, uh, is there... Uh, a relevance between, uh, you know, supply and demand uh, and, and so forth. But it's also um, to understand uh, how we can interact uh, our used offer, the secondhand offer with uh, uh, with their existing uh, uh, new range and how we can uh, commercialize that together, I think is very interesting. And it's also to see that uh, it's not one uh, solution is the only solution because this is... Uh, a buyback and resell for a store environment and the store solution. And that is, of course, one interaction that we have with our customers. And also to see what is the willingness uh, to physically bring uh, products back to IKEA uh, or is, do we need to support that even more? Um, and what is also the, the customer interest? And we have just started, so uh, it has been very positive received. Uh, and things has been um, uh, definitely coming back to IKEA and we are evaluating and we are reselling. Uh, so it, it would be uh, super exciting to see now in a couple of months from now uh, uh, and evaluate uh, the outcome and also for us internally to understand the business benefits and um, how we can operate this in a store environment. Because of course, there are limitations of space and mm. so on. And But another connection is also that we have a project in Sweden uh, which is called Retuna, uh, that is also sort of similar, but here we are working with an external partner uh, in, in Eskilstuna in Sweden, together then with a, with a store uh, in Sweden, where we then, um, uh, things that people actually are bringing back, uh, what they see as a waste, together with Retuna, we are then repairing and refurbishing these IKEA products and reselling them. Uh, with uh, this partner. And I think this is also important to see that we can't always do everything ourselves and within the uh, umbrella of IKEA. It's really also to find uh, good partners and uh, where we can do bus the business together with their knowledge, uh, which sometimes they, they know so much more than we do. And uh, when people hear about some of these projects, the um, the, the, the buy buyback and the Retuna mm -hmm. um, models, they might be. Uh, whenever I hear that, I think these these seem quite different from what some of IKEA's competitors might be doing, and especially considering the size of the business. You know, there's this old cliche around large businesses are like. Um, cargo ships they take mm. a long time to turn around mm. and i'm sure that's still true but but the pace of change seems quite fast at ikea i wonder if you could in these final moments we have with you yeah. just give us an insight into the innovation process at ikea and how that yeah. transformation is happening yeah 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 but it is uh, it is a cargo to <laughs> to change uh, and i mean we are we have been the world class 
best linear company for the 75 years. And now in less than 10 years, we are going to be world-class circular business. Uh, So, of course, uh, I hope with all the learnings we have gathered this past 75 years, we bring them in now from a circular perspective. At the same time, I mean, we have done it before. Uh, I think we can, I mean, we went to flat pack. I think this is similar. It is um, uh, impacting the complete value chain. Uh, when we went to flat pack from uh, changing how we design our logistic, our how we meet our customers, we we have done it before, and I think that's why it's also have uh, the speed uh, it has. But at the same time, my learnings and what I bring with me working with this now for the past four years is that we have a very clear direction. We have commitment uh, within the company, even though through the COVID situation and uh, and uh, I mean. Um, and so forth. We will. We have not moved away from our strong sustainability commitment and our circular uh, commitment, and so forth. Uh, at the same time, uh, when working and um, with our entrepreneurship, we have also decided to be a, a small agile team. But at the same time, the shift and the transformation happen within the business owners. So it's nothing on the side. It's really working through our core uh, uh, business owners. And I think that is also a key in, the, and at this, uh, in this. And of course, for us, it is really a huge business opportunity for us as a company because it answers to uh, being relevant and we want to reach 3 billion people. So we need to stay in tune with what they want and this is what they want. Mm. And at the same time, we need to be uh, uh, driving a business that is positive for uh, people and planet. So we have to be cautious about resources and the impact, the climate impact and so forth. So that's why it goes really hand in hand with who we are as a company and our continuation sure. to be able to grow. And I'm just going to take one question from the audience because it's connected to something mm. you just said about what mm. customers want. And it's mm. um, we've had a really engaged audience, lots of questions in. And Esther's asked... Uh, what does IKEA do to stimulate circular use by their customers? Um, any any thoughts on that, Marlin? I mean, uh, we are already today offering spare parts, for instance, uh, to our customers. Last year, we sold 13 million spare parts, and we are improving that business already now. To and we're testing online sales for that. We uh, recovered uh, through our. Uh, IKEA Inca Group, our biggest retailer, 47 million products we recovered uh, and sold uh, through our retailers. And here we are also now, um, uh, the coming years, also developing support in how can you maintain and care products that you already have at home, because that I would say is the most affordable and sustainable way to take care of what you have at home or pass on things that you don't want. We have so much at home that is to no use for for me or for you. That is really something useful for someone else. So how can we be an enabler uh, to activate that? Uh, Because it it has a value for someone else. A a hint there of quite an exciting future, I think, and uh, changing the relationship to Mm. all the stuff around us in our homes. Marlin, I wish we had longer with you today. um, Yeah, but uh, (laughs) I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for helping us challenge some of the assumptions around affordability and and the cost of transitioning to a circular economy for businesses and for us as citizens and uh, customers as well. Um, 
you've helped us show a bit of a pathway forward. Uh, now it's back to Laura in the studio. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> thank you, Joe, and thank you, Marlene. And thank you so much for asking all your questions. We are sorry we couldn't go back to all of them with Malin, but we hope uh, we will be able to get to all of them in the rest of this episode. It's, I, I, we should say that it's going to be a slightly longer episode than the rest of them, but you are available. They are available to watch back on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, or on our website. For the next 15 minutes, we will watch uh, a segment from a conversation my, co my colleague Anna Carral from the Circular Design team and myself had with Emily Piloton, uh, the founder of Girls Garage, a few days ago, where we discussed the importance of inclusion, empowerment, and community when designing for a circular economy. Of course, retroactively in hindsight, you know, my childhood makes a lot of sense. I think it's no accident that I ended up in the fields of education and design and building. Um, I, I grew up in a family that was um, multiracial and my two grandmothers were both librarians and my two grandfathers were both engineers. So I sometimes joke that architecture and design is sort of like right in the middle of those two things. Um, and I just, I grew up building stuff. I've always had sort of a propensity for making things with my hands and taking things apart and wanting to understand mechanically the way that the world works. And I had two parents who were very encouraging of that. I, I was always like getting dirty and messing something up, um, taking something apart in my parents' house. And that's just, I think, always the way that I've come to understand the world. And then as a teenager, I had this incredible opportunity uh, to travel to Central America with a group of teenagers from around the country. Um, and I was there all summer and it was part of a service project. And over the summer, we, we built an entire town park um, alongside local masons and carpenters. And I learned how to build. I was 16 years old and I was like up on a ladder using a power tool and mixing concrete by hand. And this experience was um, transformative for me, not just because I, I got to travel. I, I got to work in another part of the wor world and um, be immersed in another culture. But also the physical act of building at that young of an age really changed the way I thought about my identity and the role that I could play in the world and in shaping the world. I did not previously think of myself as a 16-year-old girl who had um, a thing that I could offer that could could transform other people's lives and could transform the built landscape. So that experience is, is really the thing that I look back on and, and say that's the moment when I knew that architecture was the medium in which I wanted to engage with the world for the rest of my life. Um, and so after that, you know, went on to study architecture. I went to um, University of California at Berkeley for my undergraduate degree and then the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for uh, my MFA in design and architecture. And um, when I left graduate school, to make a long story very short, I left graduate school with a large amount of debt, as many people do, and uh, was, uh, you know, 25 years old and felt like, okay, I have, to, I have to have a good job, I have to have a retirement plan, I have to do all the things you're supposed to do um, as a, as a grown-up, and quickly realized that what that meant for me was taking a job that I really didn't care about. I was working in an industry I loved. I loved architecture and design, but the daily work of doing plumbing details or working on projects that didn't feel like my own um, felt so disconnected from that experience I had as a 16 year old of being 
down in the dirt and building things and working with people and learning. And that is the experience of design and building that I wanted to recreate selfishly for myself and, and for others, for other designers and for other young people. So that was the birth of um, the work that I'm now doing. I have been doing for uh, 13 years and it's been really a gift to find that I still love design. I still love architecture. I love teaching and that there is a way to combine all those things that for me feels deeply fulfilling. And we are going to explore as part of this conversation what you do um, in, in as part of your project. Um, but I would like uh, us to take um, a, a step back uh, for one second and, and understand, because both uh, your project and your book are called Girls' Garage. And I guess it's, it's probably a question that you get uh, many times. Uh, but I, I'm sure people, some people might be wondering why the focus on girls and, and why not perhaps people in general. So, so I wanted to, to ask you, why, why are you focusing on, on women and girls uh, for this particular project? That's a great question. Um, I should say that when I first started the nonprofit, when I first started doing this work in 2008, our program originally was a co-ed program. And I taught um, what was essentially a vocational high school shop class. Um, and that was incredible. It taught me so much about who I am as a teacher. And we built some really wonderful projects with my co-ed classes of students. Um, but As a woman and a woman of color myself, I had experienced certain things um, on job sites, in boardrooms, in, um, in architecture firms that I knew at the time were deeply gendered experiences. These were things that I was experiencing because I was a young woman. And as I began to teach more in my classroom environment, I started to see some of the same types of dynamics happening with my female students. And these aren't, these aren't like horrible offenses and no one was being overtly harassed. However, there were moments where I could see one of my female students questioning herself or having to do the calculus in her head in a moment where, you know, I would say, I need someone to go cut 15 pieces of wood. And I knew that my female students could do it perfectly And I could just see them thinking like, should I volunteer? If I do, is someone going to tell me, no, I'll do it instead. It's just a constant social calculus. You have to prove you belong in the room. You have to prove that you are just as skilled and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So I wanted, as I was teaching these incredible young people, I just felt like there was an additional opportunity to create a space for only my female students to work together with me in a space where we didn't have to do that social calculus and whatever, let's call it 15% of the energy we spend trying to prove that we're good enough to be in the room, that we're smart enough. Um, we don't have to do any of that. We just get to do the work. And that's liberating to know that you now have 15% more energy to put towards creativity and collaboration and not towards all of these, these types of baggage. Um, so that's really where it came from. And as I continue to work with young girls, it became clear that this was not, Girls Garage is not about grievance. It's not about saying like, oh, men are the worst. We want a space for girls. That's not the point. The point is that there's something so magical that happens when you create a physical space for girls and women and say, this place is ours and it's by us and for us. There is so much power in that. And so I want to explore how far we can take that. What does it mean to have a space that's made by and for girls where we're also going out into the world and building structures that live in the world that were built by girls and women? 
that changes the way our world looks and feels. So I think that carving out spaces for micro communities, whether that's girls and women or um, people of color or young people is always powerful because it allows us to better connect our identity to our work. Well, thank you, Emily. I mean, these all resonate very well and it's it's really funny because we still haven't talked much about circular economy but the project that you've set up like these 10 years of experience they are so much related to the circular economy um one of the principles of the circular economy is about keeping products and materials in use and well some of the the stories that we've read and and listened in in some of the interviews are, are about like remanufacturing, uh, repairing, building, right? Uh, could you share like the story of, like a quick story of something that this community of girls have uh, repaired or built together that have brought value uh, to the community? Sure. Yeah, I think, um, so I should say that almost all of the projects that girls build here are for our community. So we do projects where we'll build a birdhouse or a wooden spoon and girls will take it home. But ultimately, the, what we're always working up to is projects that live outside of the walls of Girls Garage because I want girls to understand and experience what it's like to build something for someone else and to see the impact of that thing. Um, so one project that comes to mind, we've had a longstanding partnership um, with an organization that's just about um, a mile away. It's a, a daytime service center for homeless women and children. Um, and then they also have a, a residence for homeless women and women who are leaving situations of um, domestic violence or domestic abuse. And so we've worked with this organization for many years. And um, the organization is, is a nonprofit. It's always uh, looking for support and donations. And their space itself, this was a few years ago, um, I went to visit and I was just looking around thinking, you know, there are so many small things we could do to renovate this space and to build new furniture and just to, to bring new life to the space. And so the girls over the past uh, four or five years have built probably close to 20 pieces of furniture, um, built-in fixtures, a picnic table, a playhouse, uh, planter boxes outside, a new pantry system for the kitchen. And it's been this very slow renovation. We sort of do things piecemeal. Uh, but the the ways in which that space has been transformed by these small built projects, the, it does feel like repair. It feels like small moments where we can remind um, the women who use the space and the women who work to support the space that there is dignity and respect and beauty in the work that they do. So I, I think about repair not just in like in the sense of something's broken and now it's fixed. But also in the act of repairing something, you're really communicating to, to the user, whoever uses this thing, and to yourself, that, that there is dignity and value and respect. And I think that's what I want to communicate to girls also through these projects that they build, whether it's a dining room table or a, a playhouse at the, at the Women's Center, that we're doing this because everyone deserves to live in a space and in a place that recognizes their their dignity. Um, and so I think about repair in that way too, not just in the physicality of it, but in honoring the history um, and the future of the people that are using the thing. Well, thank you very much. I mean, um, it to me, like where, where I collect from what you just said is that you put empathy 
at the center and then you try to bring all the skills, expertise and competences to like enable um, like and increase the, the quality of the experiences of the people, but at the same time uh, keep in use like those materials and resources that had already been extracted and that were there. And you just like enhance them throughout using that concept that you said previously, um, uh, creative uh, Capital, or you, you mentioned that creative I really, capital, yeah. yeah, creative capital. Like I do believe that's uh, one of the elements that we could include in the in the talk of circular design at some point. Um, I think um, I'm looking in your background and I'm reading the fear less, uh, build more. Um, how did you come up with that slogan? Yeah, that, so I have a funny story about this slogan. So about uh, four years ago, um, we moved into this physical space. We had been in a different space before. And when we moved in here, we also rebranded uh, the, the organization. And I worked with this a friend of mine who runs a really a phenomenal design and uh, branding agency out of Chicago. And one of the people on the team wrote this slogan for us, Fear Less, Build More, and sent it to me. And the first time I read it, I remember thinking, this is horrible. I hate this because it implies that girls are always afraid. And then I, I heard myself say it and I thought, you know, well, everyone's always afraid. I think we're just afraid to say that we're always afraid. And um, this is really at the foundation of this space. Like, I think this slogan embodies so much because it says the thing that feels like kind of like, am I supposed to say that? Am I supposed to say that I'm afraid? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a way of saying the minute girls walk in the door, it's okay if you're scared. And not only is it okay, but we're going to show you how to use that fear as the jumping off point for doing brave things because you can't be brave unless you're scared. There's, they go hand in hand. So we often talk about practicing bravery, that it's a muscle. It's also a choice. You can choose in a moment to do the thing that scares you. So it's also not an accident that the Fear Less, Build More is uh, right above this yellow saw that's uh, mm -hmm. the chop saw, the miter saw, which is often the first tool that girls use, learn how to use. It's also one of the scariest tools. The blade is about this big. It's bigger than girls' heads and it's very loud. Um, but we teach girls that tool first because it is the scariest. And because I, I want them to know I will stand right next to you. We will learn all of the safety protocol. Everything is going to be fine. It's going to be scary. And then you're going to do it. And then you're going to do it again. It's going to be less scary. And five years from now, you're going to be teaching it to someone else. So that slogan is on the wall. It, it, when you walk in the door, it's the first thing you see. So it is an important thing for for me to just put out there, I want girls to know that immediately, that if you're scared, it's okay. We're still going to build together. Wow. I mean, wow. Because like, as you are speaking, like it relates to me to the circular design journey. Like we are, we have this vision uh, where we believe that um, the circular economy is an economy that's um, uh, regenerative by design. And it's, it's a new vision. It's, um, scary because it's new but um we are all trying together to move towards that direction and it like this support is needed because it's a it's a new journey but it's true that um like we, we have to build and and make and iterate and fail and stand up again and 
yeah, keep moving. Like it, we won't get it right the first time. Um, yeah, so I was all the time looking at the background and I love the story because it's very similar to when a designer starts their circular design journey and like the rules of the game are totally different. It's not about just making more and faster. It's about like designing and creating so that the materials and products that we use, they are still kept in use. So um, yeah, I think it's a really good slogan that we might uh, want to, to spread and share uh, wider with, with the audience at some point. Um, I wanted to ask you also, now that we know like what's happened with Girls Garage so far, um, what, what does the future look like? Would you like to scale this idea? Like, what, what are your, your thoughts? Yeah, this is the million dollar question. So <laughs> I, I get asked this question all the time. This is, uh, I think our reflex as humans is when we see something that is good, we want it to be bigger, right? And I, I think that um, the idea of scale for me is, is complicated because I go back to my architect's instinct, right? When you build a house, you're building within a context and the house works because you've responded to that context and that client. And the minute you take the, the plans for that house and you drop it, drag and drop it, but 50 more times all over the community or the county, um, it kind of stops working for everyone. And so I, I think about scale in a very different way than I think most people want me to. Often uh, people will say, well, are you going to franchise? Is there going to be a girl's garage in, in London or in, in Chicago? And I always say no. And I don't mean that because I don't want there to be a version of Girls Garage in every city and town. I do. Um, I think that Girls Garage is, is a beautiful thing here in the Bay Area because of how much we've responded to the placeness, uh, the physical geography placeness of our community, um, of our partner organizations, and of our girls. The girls that come here we really, really are nimble and try to respond to the things that they need. And I think there is something about that intimacy and closeness that is not easily scalable. And so when we talk about scale as an organization, we don't talk about scale in terms of breadth or in terms of quantity. Like how can we serve 1 million girls for one hour each? I'm far more interested in how can we serve a hundred girls for 10,000 hours each? I don't know if my math there is correct, but you get the point. I, I'm, I think about scale in terms of vertical depth and how much more we can do for the girls that walk in the door. We have heard from Malin about IKEA's circular economy journey as the world's largest furniture retailer and their efforts on connecting democratic and circular design to offer affordable furniture. Emily Piloton explained how not just designing, but also making and building can empower young people and boost their creativity. Girls' Garage provides a safe environment for girls to exercise voice and power. That's all for this episode of the Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, share and comment wherever you are listening to this podcast. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.